Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey, Deputy Personal Finance Editor of Investors Chronicle, and Ed Smith, Asset Allocation Strategist at Rathbones. We've hit half year and for a number of investment markets it hasn't been bad so far. But if you're an investor, you'll be well aware that what counts is not past performance, but what lies ahead. And although no one has a crystal ball, you can try to form a picture of what might affect the world of investment by looking at a number of indicators. Ed, what are your preferred indicators when trying to determine the lie of the investment landscape? Well, I'm an asset allocator, so what I'm most concerned about is when to move between equities and bonds or cash. Now, the major turning points there coincide with the business cycle. You don't tend to want to uh, sell equities in any significant way until the pace of job creation slows to a crawl, or perhaps more technically, when it slows to below the structural trend. So I'm really looking at, at the business cycle. Now, Equities or investments tend to lead the business cycle by about three months. So what you really want to do, rather than just rely on that unemployment or employing data itself, is find some leading economic indicators that help you um, estimate where the business cycle is heading over the next quarter. Now, we have our own sway uh, at Rathbones. Um, some of the ones that, that make it into our headline global leading economic indicator are the ISM survey of new orders in the States, uh, new export orders in Korea to get a, a pulse of, of Asian trade, uh, perhaps the Canadian dollar uh, as, a, as a gauge of the pulse of commodity exporting uh, nations. Um, uh, so, so yeah, that, that perhaps that gives a flavour of what we're really looking at as asset allocators. Okay, it's interesting. So what are these indicators suggesting at the moment? Well, they're suggesting that global growth, which has been yeah, accelerating over the last 18 months, is likely to reach a, uh, something of an apex in the third quarter uh, of this year, after which growth may decelerate uh, a little bit. Now, it's unlikely to decelerate to a level that we're worried about. Growth is still likely to be much better than what we've seen for, for the past four or five years, even after that apex has, has been reached. But as that macro momentum fades, you may want to be a little careful about cyclicality. So remain invested in equities because growth is still good, but because of that deceleration, perhaps favour some of the uh, less risky areas of the market, the, the areas less sensitive to the business cycle. Okay, and what will be examples of those areas? So yeah, I think some of the areas we like, well, as I said, you, you can you can rank industry mm. sectors by their sensitivity to the business cycle. And we would avoid some of the most sensitive there. So some of the uh, financials, some of the segments of, of uh, consumer discretionary. We would also favour uh, what we call a quality growth style. Uh, so companies that, are, that have a record of um, achieving incremental improvements on return on equity. That's been one of the few styles that has consistently done well over the last few years. And we're a little more cautious on the sort of the value style, you know, picking up uh, those unloved stocks and, and particularly if they're economically sensitive. Okay. Now, you obviously highlighted some areas, you know, that you say are sensitive. Should you totally avoid these areas? If you've got a great stock picking process, then there's always going to be some gems that are that are under researched or, or misrepresented. So, yeah, just because we're negative on a sector doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't going to be great companies in that sector. Or similarly, you know, if we're negative on a style, some 
companies that fit into that style. But as a broad brushed sort of asset allocation, yeah, top down, um, yeah, we we would we would be quite cautious. Okay. Now, how far ahead can you try to plan using? you know, all this information. You're going to struggle to forecast the business cycle with any um, real accuracy uh, more than uh, at most two quarters ahead of where, of, of where you are today. So from a tactical asset allocation point of view, yeah, that, that, that's where we tend to, to, to focus our attention in about six months' time. There are some indicators, um, or monetary-based indicators, you know, various measures of interest rates and what they have done, that do tend to lead the business cycle by longer than that, some up to you know, 18 months, even 24 months. But you have to be a little careful about how you use them as an investor, because as I said, the equity market only tends to lead the business cycle by three months. So you wouldn't want to respond to an indicator that's telling you where the business cycle might be in 18 months, uh, because you're going to be ahead of the uh, of the equity markets. It perhaps it's good to get some contacts to guide you in your thinking to prepare you for what investments you, moves you may make in the future. But they could be too far ahead to respond to today. But they are helpful in um, some style and sector strategy, which perhaps does tend to lead the business cycle by longer than three months. So the performance of cyclical stocks relative to defensive stocks tends to lead the business cycle by um, about six, nine, even 12 months in certain markets. So they could be more helpful there. Okay. Now, you were talking about periods of maybe three to six months of a lot of this. But I mean, the reality is, for most investors, private investors, saving into a SIP or an ISA with a long time horizon, we don't do things over six months. And you probably shouldn't, because if you're going to invest in a, a risk asset like equities, you should have an investment horizon of at least five years, a long term investment horizon. So how relevant is it to look at these indicators if you one of these investors, let's say, as opposed to a, a day trader? I mean, I think that's a great question. Certainly, the bulk of your returns are going to be attributable to your strategic asset allocation, that core asset allocation that is appropriate for you over the long term. Yeah, absolutely right. And that's why at Rathbones, we balk at the fact that a number of our peers simply take their strategic asset allocation off the shelf you know, by you know, following the WMA in mm. indices, for example, which are rather you know, little more than a finger in the air survey of what other investment managers uh, are doing, some of which may or may not have a great process. I guess from the point of view of a private investor, nothing to do with their personal circumstances, which are an important quite, determinant in asset often, allocation. Yeah, they're not really yeah. put together with um, sort of risk-adjusted returns mm. in mind and risk clients' risk profiles in mind. So, yeah, we have our own strategic asset allocation um, methodology at Rathbones. And, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's going to account for a lot of the returns. And we've invested a lot of time and effort in improving that process. But there are going to be opportunities to tactically deviate mm. away from that strategic asset allocation in order to generate extra returns. Now, we're actually more likely to make big deviations from that strategic asset allocation in the name of preserving capital. So during periods of acute market stress, we are prepared to uh, deviate 
by a considerable amount. If that's what we have to do in order to observe our clients' risk tolerances, in order to you know, not exceed the, the maximum level of drawdown that they're willing or able to tolerate in the name of making money. Okay. Can you give us a quick overview of what your current strategy is? So uh, at the moment, we're actually not deviating too far from our strategic asset allocation. Um, we're very slightly, uh, we're sort of neutral to very slightly underweight on equity markets. We're a little underweight on uh, US and, and Europe. Uh, we favour in um, uh, large caps over over small caps. Uh, we're overweight Japan, but we have we're allocating a lot of our uh, capital um, to uh, what we call diversifying assets. Mm. And we have uh, a great process uh, at Rathbones for trying to identify diversifying assets because it's not good enough just to take look at what they've done over the last or what an asset might have done over the last 20 years, calculate a quick correlation, see it looks about zero, uh, because that can really catch you out, as it did many investors in 2008, 2009. You have to be really sure that your diversifying assets will continue to function as such when equity markets are falling south at a really fast rate of knots. What diversifying assets do you like at the moment? Well, currently there are, there are some certain hedge fund style strategies that we like. We think macro uh, hedge funds, um, which have struggled over the last few years, are, 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 are entering an environment that, that should be very favourable to them. The reason macro hedge funds have struggled, or one of the reasons, is because so many risk assets have been driven by the same factors. Yeah, and if you think sort of a lot of these guys are, are pair traders, mm. um, if everything's driven by the same factor, they're going to struggle to find the sort of pair trading differentials that, from which they make their returns. But in the last uh, six months, we've noticed that markets have been driven by a much broader spread of, of different factors, different markets, different factors, and that should help out those guys. Okay. Now, thinking about, you know, risks, things ahead, near-term challenges, certainly for, I think, a lot of our readers and our listeners, there'll be one big issue on the horizon that um, is maybe dominating their thoughts, and that's obviously Brexit in 2019. What do you think about this? Does it mean investors should avoid UK equity markets? Is it a big threat? Is it a threat to any other equity markets? I mean, what are the issues surrounding this? Yeah, well... I don't think it necessarily means investors should avoid UK markets wholesale. And that's because you know, the FTSE, what we mm. call the UK market, isn't really a UK No, so index. a FTSE 100 now, yeah. Quite, yeah. quite right. FTSE 100, 80% of earnings are earned abroad, you know, mm. from sales made over abroad. But it, it does uh, have much more of a bearing on the FTSE 250, where only between 40 and 50% of sales are made abroad, and certainly the FTSE small cap. Um, uh, as well. You know, last year, expectations about what the result of the referendum would do to the economy in, in the short term were far too exaggerated. You know, the growth forecasts for 2017 were slashed to you know, not much above zero. We always thought that was a gross overreaction. But now, expectations for growth this year has been revised up too far in our opinion. Consensus GDP growth is between 1.75% and 2% this year. We think that there is much uh, 
uh, a much greater likelihood of investors being disappointed, the consensus being disappointed there than it is uh, there is of uh, of them being surprised uh, positively. Um, and if you think sort of tactical asset allocation is more about what is achieved relative to expectations rather than the actual level of growth itself. It's really about growth relative to expectations. Expectations are too high. We think the economy is going to struggle. And that means that some of those stocks geared into the UK economy might struggle too. So does that mean people should not buy small and mid caps, only buy large caps? or what? Uh, mm. As a broad brush uh, allocation, yeah, we think we, that people should uh, avoid them. But of course, there's, there are some great, fast growing, disruptive companies. Mm. So, so I wouldn't forget about them entirely, but just be and careful funds about funds that invest where in them. Yeah. Exposure uh, really lies. And particularly, we're concerned about the UK consumer. Mm. Yeah, we've now headed into the fourth quarter of negative real wage growth uh, in the UK. We have never seen four consecutive quarters of of, of negative real rate w- wage growth. Yeah, it's really quite extraordinary. You have to, you know, even in the 1970s, you didn't see four consecutive quarters. So you know, we're really concerned about the, the UK consumer. We've got a lot of debt. Savings have been drawn on to an extraordinary extent. Um, course valuations in in uk retail are, are pretty cheap but it's difficult to see a catalyst for them to, to to move higher this year for us so cheap for a reason quite right okay thank you ed some really helpful insights thank you top fund managers have a good record of generating returns but no one gets it right all the time kate you've been speaking to a manager who does seem to get it right pretty much 99 percent of the time but in 2016 didn't do so well who is it? So, yeah, this is Nick Train, who set up Linzel Train, uh, Michael Linzel back in 2000. And he runs Finsbury Growth and Income Trust, uh, Linzel Train UK Equity Income and Linzel Train Global Equity. So how bad were things in 2016 and what caused it? So I guess bad in a relative sense, because his three funds, um, the ones I just mentioned, underperformed their benchmarks in 2016. But we should say that they did still deliver a positive return for the for the calendar year. And in fact, that period of underperformance was very short lived and also very rare. They've performed so strongly in all in the years kind of running up to that, that this was this was a rare blip. I guess what happened in 2016 was that we had this big kind of surprise bounce back in many ways in uh, mining companies and resources companies and in financial stocks. And those are areas that Nick Train just does not invest in, generally speaking. So in that sense, it was unsurprising that these funds lagged the, the FTSE All Share, for example, um, which really rallied on, on the basis of, of those stocks kind of bouncing back from very depressed levels. Okay, so hardly a disaster. And you mentioned the funds are bouncing back. How have they done year to date? Well, in fact, in 2017, uh, Finsbury Growth and Income has made almost double the return of the FTSE All Share. So clearly quite, quite a strong bounce back. Okay, so Nick Train's obviously doing something different to a lot of managers. What sort of things does he do to make these mostly good returns? 
Well, I guess the interesting factor is that he doesn't do a lot in some ways. His tactic is to buy and hold, and he would like to hold things forever, really. He doesn't like to buy and sell very much. In fact, in the past six years, he's just bought two things and only sold two things as well. And this would be new purchases. So in fact, what he tries to do is just is just buy the right things and hold onto them. And he is a, a kind of a different breed, I guess you could say, from many managers. He, for example, doesn't see the point in endlessly trooping around to meet different company CEOs, puts a lot of store by reading very intensively. So he's he's kind of maybe cut from a slightly different cloth to others in, in many ways. Okay. Now, does he have any regrets um, about his approach? Well, I mean, it's been an interesting kind of four years for him in some senses because he's had to endlessly talk about Pearson for one. Right. Um, Pearson has been a bit of a thorn in his side, I guess you could say. Uh, he's been kind of apologising for, for the holding at successive AGMs and presentations in recent years. Pearson's been really struggling with this transition from, I guess, being kind of a textbook education textbook producer to being a digital education software company. It's had five profit warnings in four years, suffered a record loss in 2016. And he's been saying that he needs to either double up this holding or get rid of it altogether. I guess he wouldn't say this was a regret yet because he would argue that, you know, there is still time for it to make a success of this transition. But certainly that is a stock that's been a bit of a pain to him. In terms of things that he has not bought, which are regrets, he cites Lint as one of those. The chocolate maker. The chocolate maker. He, he really loves these kind of family, which often tend to be European family-run businesses. Make rather nice things to eat and drink. Exactly. <laughs> like You often find them in drinks brands like Remy Cointreau, yeah. for example. And he didn't buy Lint. He said it, it, they got very, very close to buying it once. It was in kind of a half a, half a euro away from being where they wanted, but they didn't buy it. And, and he says... He does regret that. Also regrets not buying Google, actually, which is maybe not one that looks exactly like other companies in in his portfolio, but obviously would would have generated some pretty strong returns over the years. Okay, thank you, Kate. And you can read a fuller version of her interview with Nick Train in this week's Investors Chronicle. Sticking with the subject of fund managers, boutique asset manager Troy has recently announced an addition to their small but growing team. Who's gone over and why? So this is Mark Warrior, who has moved over from BlackRock to become assistant manager of Trojan Income Fund alongside uh, Francis Brooke and Hugo Ewer. Okay, now what did Mark do at BlackRock? So he used to co-manage BlackRock UK Income Fund and uh, BlackRock Income and Growth Investment Trust over at BlackRock. Okay, and why has Troy hired him? It's hired him because its equity income franchises, AUM, has really grown in recent years, now stands at about four billion. And so it's just kind of looking to beef up that area. Okay, so Mark was a, a, an income specialist at BlackRock and he's going to do more income. Mm. I suppose it begs the question, though, what's going to happen to his funds at BlackRock? Uh, so BlackRock UK Income is now going to be managed by Adam Avigdori. Interestingly, Morningstar has now lowered its rating on that fund because it said that although it did used to be run in a team fashion by uh, Mark, Adam and by David Goldman, it was kind of 
mark that led on that fund and so this could make a real real dent on it. Mr Avery Dory will also carry on as co-manager of the Investment Trust. Along with David Goldman. Yeah. Yeah. I guess time will tell how Adam and David manage those funds and for further analysis on the impact of Mark Warrior's departure from BlackRock have a look at the fund's news in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. That brings us to the end of today's podcast so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey Deputy Personal Finance Editor at Investors Chronicle, and Ed Smith, Asset Allocation Strategist at Rathbones. You can read more on what look like good places to invest, Nick Train's investment philosophy, and Troy Asset Management's and BlackRock's equity income funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.